Our grace-giving Father, we come before you this morning and we celebrate. Lord, we celebrate in song, we celebrate in our hearts, Lord God. There are many things that we celebrate this day. We celebrate, of course, grace, unmerited, undeserved favor, that you found us when we were not looking for you. You searched for us when we were lost and didn't even know we were lost and drew us back to you, called us your own, adopted us into your family, made us sons and daughters and heirs of yours, all by undeserved, unmerited favor. We come before you this day and we lift up our voices in celebration of the fact that we are children of God, not by merit, but by gift. So we thank you this day, Lord God. We also celebrate, Lord, the, um, the opportunity to share in your attributes or your perfection of giving. Father, you have enabled us, called us to be generous. And as I look at these Shoe boxes, Lord God, many of them. We can celebrate that there's a certain number, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But I see the joy of people who have gathered gifts together and compiled them into a box, and they celebrate, they, they call and they they talk to us and they say, oh, how fun it was. How, what a joy it was to know that there is going to be some child whom I've never met who is going to be thrilled with this gift. And through this gift, hear the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can participate in kingdom work through something as simple as a box filled with joyful things. Father, we thank you that we can do that. And I pray, Lord God, that as these gifts go out to the world in places perhaps where the gospel has never been heard or where the gospel is restricted, that it will open doors it will open hearts and eyes and minds that your name will be glorified on all the earth. We thank you for all the volunteers who are so diligent, do diligently work so hard for this. Lord God, as the boxes are delivered this day to the Pace and Distribution Center, many people are involved. And then it goes to Flagstaff and all of these places, Lord God. We thank you for them. And we thank you, Lord God, for those who serve. This day, Lord God, we look at all who in this church serve so faithfully. We celebrate that, Lord God. We celebrate the fact that people out of the, the joy of their heart, Lord God, the joy that you put in them, Lord, that they desire to bless others. They express love for others by greeting people as they come in. You've told us that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we love our neighbor by making sure they're welcome when they come in. We love our neighbor by leading in music. We love our neighbor by um, making sure the songs, the lyrics are up on the screen. We love our neighbor by giving them a hug, Lord God, and by speaking with them and talking with them. 
We love our neighbor in so many different ways. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to recognize that the things we do, Lord God, even small things, a kind word, a kind gesture is a means of showing love to our neighbor. So we thank you this day for all that you've given us. I thank you for those who prepared diligently. And I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and minds this day to receive the word that you've given to us, Lord God. And I pray that you would uh, um, show us, Father, how we might live our lives for you. And this we ask in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Well, before we uh, begin our our message today, I want to uh, tell you a story. Um, it's an important story uh, for our our study this morning. It's an important story, not because it's true. It's an important story because the setting for our story today is in the region of Lystra, and you're going to. Um, discover that as we uh, go forth and uh, look at Paul's missionary's journey, he's going to be preaching in the city of Lystra. And because this story was written um, and set in the region of Lystra, I think it is important for us to understand. It is a story written by the ancient Roman poet Ovid. It was written in the 8th century A.D., It comes out of, it's a poem, Um, I'm not going to read the poem, I'm just going to summarize the poem for you, but it it comes out of a book that he wrote called Metamorphosis. And in in this particular poem, uh, Ovid writes of the supreme god Jupiter, which would be Zeus to the Greeks, and his son Mercury, or Hermes to the Greek, remember those two terms, that the supreme god Zeus and his son Mercury once visited the hill country of Phrygia uh, near the area of Lystra, and they were disguised as mortal men. And they went about the area, the the Phrygian region, and incognito they sought hospitality from the people. And they went to a thousand different houses, and everybody ignored them. Everybody um, shunned them. A thousand people shunned them. Rebuffed a thousand times. At last, however, they came to a tiny cottage, a straw hut. Wherein lived an elderly peasant couple. They were by, went by the name of Philemon and Bacchus. And they were offered lodging by these peasants. And they entertained them out of their poverty, gave them food and drink and lodging and made them as comfortable as they possibly could. Later we read that the gods Zeus and Hermes rewarded the elderly couple. They took them up on a high place and they turned their humble little straw hut into a glorious temple where the couple would end up living. They destroyed the thousand people who rebuffed them with flood and granted um, the single request that the one couple had. I tell you this story not because, uh, again, not because it's true, not because our goal here today is to teach you Greek mythology, but we are entering, Paul and, and Barnabas and this missionary team are in 
Greek territory and the the people that they are sharing the gospel with, I believe, are influenced by this mythology. So as we continue our study in Acts chapter 14, we're going to be through looking at verses 8 through 21 today. And uh, this is Paul and Barnabas. It's an account that they're going into the area of Lystra. I want you to remember our missionary, our context. This is our, our missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas set off from Antioch, which is over on the far right side of your screen. And they, uh, they were set apart by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit called them to leave Antioch and go and share the gospel amongst non-Jews. And they go to the island of Cyprus and they preach the gospel in Salamis and they preach the gospel in Paphos. And uh, then they move on up to Perga and in Pisidian Antioch, we see they preach the gospel up there, up north, kind of the top of your screen. Thank you, Jesse, for your... Is that you? Oh, somebody was pointing something. Anyways, thank you, whoever was doing the pointing. Um, and preached the gospel in Pisidian Antioch. They got kicked out of Pisidian Antioch. They were beaten. And so they flee to Iconium, which we, uh, we saw last week. And uh, in Iconium, they were uh, beat up. And now they're moving to Lystra. Any idea what's going to happen at Lystra? Yeah, they're going to get, well, they're going to preach the gospel, then they're going to get beat up. Um, so, anyways, that's kind of Paul's... Thing. And we'll look a little bit at them going to, a, to Derby, so we can kind of see, um, this is Paul's first missionary journey. So just a quick preview, we're going to see Paul and Barnabas in the city of Lystra. There's going to be a brief mention of the work done in Derby. And one thing I want you to note also, this will come back later, and I don't want to give away the end, but um, just, I want you to note, see where Derby is right up here? Everybody see Derby? Everybody see Antioch over on the right side? I want you to note that it's about 150 miles. It's a fairly short journey from Derby to Antioch. Just think about that, file it away, and we'll talk about that later. But just notice the re- relatively short distance. All right, you with me so far? We're all caught up. We're ready to roll. Ready for Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 21? Because if not, I can just go over all that information again. So I just repeat myself. I got all day. Let's read our text. Follow along with me. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes. 
because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seeds and satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to begin with this idea of uh, Paul preaching, this, this, the sermon that Paul is preaching, and this healing of this gentleman um, in the town of Lystra. First of all, if we back up just a little bit, we will see in verse 7 that Paul and Barnabas went to Lystra, and there they began to preach the gospel. There they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. So they come into Lystra and they begin, as is their custom, to proclaim the word of God. It's interesting that they don't go to a synagogue because that's where Paul would always go first. I think the answer is there's probably no Jewish synagogue in Lystra. So they preach more likely than not. They're at the city gates preaching. Uh, we don't know that for a fact, but that would have been kind of the congregating place. But they would have gone to a place where they would have um, spoken the word of God. And one of the things we see is that the gospel that they preach is authenticated by signs and wonders. And we see that um, throughout their ministry. And here we see this healing of a lame man. Paul is preaching the gospel. He sees an individual who is lame from birth, who has never walked. Um, and he says, rise up, and the man leaps up, and he is healed. Before we go on and see the crowd's reaction to this, I, I want to stop and talk about another story. This is not a story of Greek mythology, but it is a story of actual historical account. Something that actually happened. Now, if you've been with us as we've been going through the book of Acts, you're probably reminded, or if you've read the book of Acts, you're probably reminded of the fact that, wait a second, this isn't the first lame man we've seen healed. I remember back sometime previous in the book of Acts, Peter healed a lame man. In fact, it was in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, where a very, very similar account, almost parallel. Peter is also preaching the gospel. He sees a man, or they're coming into the temple, 
and a man lame from birth. And again, Peter fixes his gaze upon him and says, silver and gold, I don't have, but what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the man goes and leaps and and, uh, rises up and he walks. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that if you read much about this account, uh, liberal theologians will simply tell you, well, Luke had no creativity. Um, and so he just put this, he didn't know what to say. So he just copied a story over from Luke or from Acts chapter three and just copied it here and put it here because he didn't know what else to do. I guess that's one possible solution. I don't think it's a very good possibility, but I guess in the realm of possibilities, that could be. But I think um, when we study Luke, I think a much more reasonable argument or a much more plausible reason for Luke, including this with the Apostle Paul, um, becomes evident. Do you mind if we get just a little bit um, technical? Can I? Okay, thank you. And you always know my answer to that. It doesn't matter, right? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it anyway. So, but at least now I have your permission. One of the interesting things, because remember, before we studied Acts, we studied Luke, and one of the, the features that Luke that, that that highlights Luke is Luke loves this idea of repetition. He loves this idea of parallels. So he tells a story happening to one person, and then he tells a similar story happening to another person. Let me give you a couple of accounts. It's like repetition is a key feature in Luke, and I'm going to give you a reason why it's a key feature, because Luke doesn't give us repetition for no purpose. He just doesn't say, well, this fills the page, and I got X amount of scroll and I need to fill in some of the scrolls, so I'll just add some extra material. Luke is very purposeful. Remember, Luke is giving an orderly account of all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. So, for instance, I have in your notes, Luke chapter 1, an angel speaks to Zechariah, and then just a few verses later, an angel speaks to Mary. But maybe more significant, well, I shouldn't say significantly, one of the interesting things is is that Luke shows um, a person, uh, Jesus healing a centurion's son and raises him from the dead. And then he goes to another town and he raises a widow's son from the dead. So first he raises a man's son from the dead, then he raises a, a widow's son from the dead. We see that he heals on the Sabbath um, and he heals um, both a man and then he heals a woman on the Sabbath. Here's, what, here's one of the things that Luke does with this repetition, with, this, um, with, this para- with this, these parallel stories. What Luke does, very common for him, Luke loves the outcasts. Remember when we studied Luke? He loves the outcasts. He loves the nobodies. He loves the people who, who are shunned by society. So here's what he does. He shows Jesus going in, and let's just say he does a miracle to a Jewish man. Then he turns around, and he does the same miracle for a woman. Luke comes in and shows a miracle done to a 
Gentile man who is um, given high regard by the Jews. And then he goes and he shows the same concern to somebody who is oppressed and outcast. See, what Luke is doing is he's showing that God shows no partiality, that God takes the outcast, that God takes the nobodies, God takes the shunned, God takes the oppressed, and he shows that in the eyes of God, those so-called outcasts are not outcasts in the eyes of God, but equal members in, in salvation, equal members of God's favor. This is what Luke does. So, When we see this parallel story in Luke, we have to go and ask ourselves, what's going on? Is Luke just giving us a historical account? Remember, many things happened in in Paul's first missionary journey. Luke selects a single account. So here's, let's try to understand the significance. Peter the apostle to the Jews, his message is authenticated by signs and wonder. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, his message is authenticated by signs and wonders. Here's Luke's point. The gospel has come to the outcast. The gospel has come to the nobody. The gospel has come to the rejected. Sure, when Paul heals a Jewish, or when Peter heals a Jewish man, everybody says, yes, he's a son of Abraham. Of course God cares for him. But now God goes to a pagan nation, a pagan city. There isn't even a Jewish synagogue there and demonstrates that God's favor is now come to the people of Lystra. Those deemed unworthy of Christ's concern are now lifted up and are included as recipients of his saving work. And Paul ends up saying, we're bringing you good news. This is good news. This is good news that God has concern for the outcast, that God has concern for the nobody, that God has concern for the abused, that God has concern not just for the the people of status or the people who are, quote, worthy of God's favor. God is reaching into dark areas and the good news is for them. I want you to understand that you may have acted in ways that are abominable to our Lord God. And I look back in my life, I'm embarrassed by things that I have done. You may even be the recipient of horrific acts, maybe even done in the name of God. Perhaps you are the perpetrator of horrific acts. Perhaps you are the recipient of of, res- of horrific acts. And you've been told all your life that you are a nobody, that you are an outcast, that you have no value, that you are worthless. Or maybe you think because of the things that you've done that God must consider me beyond His grace and beyond His saving ability. Or perhaps you are one who have not done anything or even been the recipient, but you've given hearty approval to those who did. The gospel is good news for you today because you are not beyond the saving work of Jesus Christ. There is nobody so outcast. There is nobody so far beyond God's reach 
that he will not bring good news to you. I want you to look. We see this so clearly in in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. You might want to turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse 11. But I believe that what 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 Luke is doing in this text, he is paralleling the the account with with Peter in Acts chapter 3, saying the gospel has come to the Jews, and now the gospel has come in full power and with full authority also to the Gentiles and people who are so darkened in their understanding that they don't even know the things of God and yet the gospel is for them. And I will once again repeat myself, the gospel is for you as well. Look at this. Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember! that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That's your condition. Without hope and without God. Next verse. But now in Christ Jesus. What great words. You who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. He who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostilities by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace that he might reconcile us both, that is Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and he came and preached peace to those who were near, for through him we both have have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Folks, I want you to understand that by the gospel, by the blood of his cross, he has brought you who were far off. He has brought you near. And he hasn't just brought you near. He's brought you into his own household and made you not only fellow citizens with others who have been redeemed, but you are family members. This has been done by Christ. And this has been done to the most undeserving and unwilling and the most reprehensible of people. This is what God does. If you take anything from this message, understand this is good news. Well, what's the response? The response is this. People from Lystra say, the gods have come down to us. (laughs) Makes sense, doesn't it? They don't have the Scriptures. All they have is some dead idol and some vain mythology of how Zeus and Hermes came down and destroyed everybody who didn't show them hospitality, and they are not going to make that mistake again. They're going to make sure that if these two guys are Zeus and Hermes, we're going to make sure that we show them hospitality because we don't want to end up destroyed. That's what they know. That's their response. 
The people of Lystra understand the outworking of God through a pagan worldview. They interpret the miracle of God through their empty mythology. They don't have the scriptures. They live life based on a myth. It's interesting because Paul's sermon is going to take that into consideration. And here's what Paul says. Hey, stop it. Stop it. We're men also. We have a similar nature as you do. Don't do this. Here's the problem. The problem isn't so much that they are pagans and that they they live um, according to their um, godless mythology. The problem is that they do not have, and the problem really isn't even that they don't have the word of God available to them. See, Jews had the word of God available to them and they rejected it. The issue is that they are lost. And the issue is that they cannot perceive the things of God. They see an outright miracle of God and they do not perceive that the God of the universe is speaking in this. They have no ability. They have no desire to do this. Look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What they need is they need God's word and they need God's spirit to give them clarity of the word. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They see an obvious work of God and they have no idea what to do with it. They ascribe it to pagan mythology. They don't know what else to do with it. They are lost. They are blind. They need not only God's Word, they need the Holy Spirit to illuminate God's Word for them. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Note that the mind set on the flesh does not submit to God's law, and it can't. This is what Paul and Barnabas are facing. This is what they've got. They don't know the scriptures. They don't have the scriptures, and they They don't know God and they can't know God. They will need the Spirit of God in order to understand the things of God. So Paul proclaims good news. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature and we bring you good news. We bring you good news. What's the good news? Here's Very, very interesting. I want you to note how different Paul's message to these Gentiles who have no biblical understanding. Notice how Paul, um, notice how Paul, use a fancy word, Arvid, contextualizes the message. He sets the gospel message in a context that these Lystrans will understand. Remember when Paul preached to the Jews just a couple weeks ago? He said, men of Israel, brothers, the God of our fathers spoke to our fathers and he gave us, uh, he gave us, he raised up our fathers and he gave us Solomon or he gave us Saul and he gave us David and he gave us judges and he gave us kings and he brought forth um, a savior through uh, the promise that he had promised through our fathers. Did you, you notice how Jewish that is, how 
connected it is to the Hebrew Scriptures. Because he's talking to people who understand the Hebrew Scriptures. Now he's talking to people who have no idea or at least no concern whatsoever with a guy by the name of Abraham or Moses or David or any of that. Those guys, uh, we don't care about them. So he, he, he gives them the truth, but you will see that he does it completely differently. Look at this. I'm going to give men of Lystra, we bring you good news. We're not gods. But we bring you good news. Here's the good news. That you should turn from vain things to a living God. Stop. That you should turn from vain things. You should turn from empty things. You should turn from empty myths. And you should turn to the living God. This is repentance. This is just flat out repentance. Repentance is at least two things. It is a turning from and a turning to. It is a turning away from your sin or your idols, and it is turning to the living God who will save you. If you just turn away from your sin, you've now become a lost moral person. You need to turn to the living God. So he says, men, uh, men, we're not, we're, we're like you. We're not gods. Don't worship us. But we bring you good news. And the good news is that you should turn from your empty idols that are dead to the living and true God. You are worshiping gods that are no gods. Rather, turn to the living God. And then he describes the living God. He is the creator of all things. And as creator, he makes his creation accountable to him. I want you to understand that God is our creator. God has made everything that there is. There is nothing in the universe that God has not made. God, what God has made includes you. God has made you. You are made by him and for him. We're studying that in Colossians. Let me put a plug in for Colossians on Wednesday night. Pretty good. But we're learning that he has made all things have been made by him and for him. You are made for God. By him and for him. You are accountable to that God. That means the things that he calls us to do, we ought to do. And if you're not in a right relationship with him, the first thing he calls you to do is repent of your sins and believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead and that if you repent of your sins, you will be saved. Christ took our sins upon him on the cross. Well, the first thing there is turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. That's awesome. In the past, he let nations go their own way. Kind of let them do their own thing. Acts chapter 17, 30, Paul calls this the times of ignorance. Then you acted in ignorance, but no more. The light of God's truth has come. You had no revelation. Now you do. You were worshiping the creature and not the creator and God let you go your own way, but now he has brought the light of the gospel to you. You no longer need to walk in ignorance. 
I bring you good news. Turn from your empty idols. Turn to the living and true God. Don't you know that God was merciful to you? As you walked in ignorance, God was merciful. He didn't smite you, though he had every right to. He didn't strike you down, though he had every right to wipe you off the face of the earth. But he didn't. God allowed you to walk in your ignorance and he was he bore with you in that time. But now he has brought you the gospel. Think about my own life. I've probably shared this numerous times. There are many times I look back at my life and in my foolishness and my ignorance before I was a, a follower of Christ and I look at the stupid things I did and I wonder God was so merciful. God allowed me in my ignorance to survive. I think about the many, many, many times that had things been a millimeter different, a nanosecond different, I would have entered into eternity without Christ. But God changed that nanosecond in his providence. God altered that millimeter by his providence. He bore with me in my ignorance. I don't know why, because many of my friends, they died. But for whatever reasons, God was merciful in my ignorance. And one day, the light of the gospel came. And I called upon his name and I was saved. I don't know why. I don't know why he bore with me. There's still nothing of great value. It's not like God is more complete because I, I'm a preacher. I believe I mean, God is God. God is not somehow advanced. But argue I don't even know if the kingdom is even better. But somehow God bore with me in my ignorance and God bore with you in your ignorance. And when the days of ignorance came to an end and you called upon his name, that's what he's going on here. Listen, turn from those dead, vain idols. They're nothing. Turn to the God who is alive, who created all things. You have been made by him and for him. Now call upon his name. Then Paul goes on and he says, and yet, even though you were ignorant, he still bore witness of himself. He didn't leave himself without a witness for he did good For he did good by giving you rains from heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good and gladness. Even in your ignorance, even when you hated God, he was giving you good things. He gave you rain to grow your crops. He gave you seasons. And he gave you things to satisfy you and to enjoy. God was merciful to you. We sometimes call this common grace. In times past, you did not have the revealed Word of God. What you had was you had seasons and times and you had um, uh, good things and rains from heaven. You had God testifying of Himself. We talked about this in Sunday, uh, Sunday morning Bible study. You stand out on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you go, oh my. You look into the night sky and you see the stars and you say, who made that? 
You see the sunset. You see the delicacy of a beautiful flower. And you see its intricacies. Today on our way to to church, we hit a traffic jam. There's a pace in traffic jam. Elk. I had to wait for the elk. It's interesting because, I don't know, we still stop and look at elk. They're pretty common. It's not like we're probably not going to see one tomorrow or later today. But we're in wonder and we're in awe. God has not left himself without witness. He has made himself known by the things that he has made. But he has also made himself known, not only through what he has created, but he has made himself known in his word. And today, we are talking about God's word. This is what happened. They had natural revelation. They had God revealing himself in nature. And now they come and say, we're going to tell you about the God who made everything. And this is good news. He's not dead like your idols. He's alive. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. He sent rain from heavens. So let me just give a quick summary of that big section that we just through, got through. God is the creator of all things. The living God stands in contrast to vain and dead idols. Number two, God has shown forbearance and mercy in the past. He has allowed you to go your own way, but God has been merciful towards you even in your ignorance. If you're not a Christian today, if you're not a believer today, God is forbearing and he is patient with you right now. He has also not been entirely invisible. He has made himself known through the things that he has made. Then you had no revelation. Now you do. Then you are in ignorance. Now you are not. Then, now you are held accountable to the things of God. I believe Paul's message got cut off. That's my own personal opinion. Because the next phrase is this. They could hardly restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. And then Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. I believe the sermon got cut short by the Jews. But remember, Paul had already been preaching. Remember how we started this message. He was preaching the gospel. People had already heard the gospel. Because it clearly says... In verse 7, and there, when they went to Lystra and Derby and the cities of Lyconia, there they continued to preach the gospel. They're preaching the gospel. This sermon got cut short by the Jews who pursued Paul and Barnabas. This is amazing. They came from Antioch and Iconium. They chased Paul down. <laughs> I don't know if this is another parallel from Luke, but this is almost like Paul pursuing other believers. Remember when Paul was the pursuer? Now Paul is the recipient of the pursuers. But Jews came down from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. I don't know what to say about this other than people are fickle. They persuaded the crowd. First, they're venerating and deifying Paul and Barnabas, and now they want to kill him. That's a pretty quick shift. 
We worship you till we want to kill you. Kind of did that with Jesus too. People are fickle, but let me assure you of this. God is not. In other words, God does not love you today and set his salvation upon you only to say, oops, I made a mistake. I didn't know you were going to be such a horrific person. Let me withdraw it tomorrow. Praise God, he is not like us. One of the great truths of the Bible is that God is immutable. Arvid, that's just another fancy term for God does not change. In fact, in Malachi, one of the great passages of text, it says, I am the Lord your God who do not change, therefore you are not consumed. The context of that is that the people were offering, they were horrible. They were stealing their neighbor's lamb and then offering it to God saying, oh, look. They were offering their own blemished lamb and God says, would you even offer that to your governor? They were taking other people's wives and doing all sorts of things and then worshiping God. And God says, I'm the Lord, your God. I do not change. Therefore, you're not concerned. I've made a covenant with you way back with Abraham. That covenant stands today. Otherwise, you notice, I wipe everybody else out. But I haven't wiped you out. The nations have done worse than you. And I have snuffed them out, but I haven't snuffed you out. Why? Because you're worse? Because you're better? No, because I have a covenant with you. Therefore, you are not concerned. I am so grateful. God does not change. People are fickle. They're going to deify you one day. They're going to praise you and give you great adulation. And the next day they're going to take great joy in tearing you down. And God has set his love upon you today. And tomorrow God will continue to set his love upon you. And you say, yes, but don't you know that I've sinned against that holy God? God says, yeah, there may be some discipline coming your way. Romans 12. The discipline only proves that you're my child. The discipline doesn't prove that I have abandoned you. It just simply is a demonstration that you really belong to me. So even when we're disciplined, we can look to the discipline and say, praise God, he has not abandoned me. If you are a child of God, he is not fickle. He's not surprised by your failures today, and he will not be surprised by your failures tomorrow. I'm not saying that as an excuse. I'm saying that to give you assurance that your salvation is because you are in Christ. That your righteousness is in Christ and Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where your righteousness is. It's in heaven. Where moth and rust cannot come in and destroy. That's where it's at. It's secure. Who's going to walk up to heaven and steal your salvation? Who can do that? I'm glad my righteousness is not grounded in me because my salvation would go up and down like the waves of the sea. My salvation is in Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father making intercession for us. They pursue Paul. 
They persuade the crowd that wanted to venerate them and persuade them. How about instead of offering an oxen to him, how about we kill him? Yeah, that's a great idea. So they stone Paul from deification to murder and they leave Paul for dead. Well, that probably puts an end to the missionary journey. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went to Barnabas to Derby. And there he preached the gospel. That's an amazing thing. First of all, he went back into the city. Did you notice that? But when the disciples gathered about him, Paul, he rose up and entered the city. What city? Lystra. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derby. He went back into town. And then he goes on to Derby. And he makes a lot of disciples in Derby. And he preaches the gospel. And they make many disciples. And then note what they do. This is why I wanted you to note the, the, the distance between Derby and Antioch. About 150 miles. And we'll get here the next week. Notice what they do. They go back. They go back to Lystra, where he got beat up. They go back to Iconium, where he got beat up. They go back to Pisidian Antioch, where he got beat up. But not only did he get beat up, folks, he's not a masochist. There are believers in these towns. They've made disciples in these towns. They're going back to train and equip and encourage and strengthen the people who have received the gospel. I don't care. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's like, listen, we may suffer at the hands of the people who hate us, but... We are also going to strengthen our brothers and sisters. And that is of greater value than whatever may befall us if we go back. Yeah, we're going back. Is it dangerous? Of course. But I, thought, I think Paul probably thought it's more dangerous not to go back to deny strengthening our brothers and leading them to the wolves than to go back and strengthen them. How could we give birth to these new believers and then just leave them in the midst of wolves. We'll go back and strengthen them, even if it costs us everything. Wow. They preached the gospel and they made many disciples. Folks, my goal isn't to say, oh, we need to go into dangerous places. Maybe you are, but, but the value of a disciple, the value of a disciple we learn much of the value of a believer and making more believers. That no cost is too great. I don't know. I cower in front of my neighbor if I have an opportunity to share the gospel. Lord, have mercy on me. I pray that God would put upon our hearts the value of a soul. The value of another soul that we would stop at nothing to make sure that the gospel goes forth. And whether we're taking it across the world or across the street, that we'd recognize the gospel. And we would not fear going back and strengthening our brothers. So I'll just conclude with this. First thing that we should take note of is that God is the true and living God. He is not like the idols of the culture. 
And there are many idols today. Probably our most significant idol is probably self. We deify ourselves. But God is not like the idols of the age. He is the true and living God. I want you to think of the the mercy and the forbearance that God had with you during your times of ignorance, but now you've come to know him. And I would pray also that if you are not a believer this morning, that you would understand that you've been made by God for God and that you have sinned against the Holy God. You've done something, you know, that has separated you and your sins have separated you from God. Behold, your sins are as red as scarlet, but they can be white as snow. They can be white as snow because Jesus Christ will take your place. The wrath of God is against sin and those who commit sin. But Jesus Christ bore that wrath on your behalf and you can have forgiveness. And as Charlie would put it, God's no longer going to come after you. Rather, he will forgive you of your sins. And you can be called a child of the living God. The other thing that I'd like to challenge the church with, I want you to think about this. Who are you going to share the gospel with this week? What is the value of your neighbor's soul? What is the value of the soul in the waiting room? What is the value of the soul uh, of the person you meet while waiting in line at the store? What is the value of a soul? Who will you share the gospel with this week? You say, I'm so bad at it. Trust God. Trust God. I'm preaching to myself. Think about who you want to share the gospel with this week. Maybe you know that person's name. Maybe you're just thinking, well, if God gives me a divine appointment, begin praying. Even now, each day, pray, God, bring that person. Help me to share the gospel with somebody this week. Pray for boldness when you enter that divine encounter. Not just boldness, but um, recognition. I often share that I often recognize divine appointments like at the end of the day after they've already occurred. Well, man, God brought me that person and I didn't even notice it. Pray that God would help us to recognize and share the gospel. We'll share out our weakness. We don't share out of our strengths. We share out of our weakness. And God will give us strength. Who can you encourage this week? Paul went back and he encouraged the disciples. Think about somebody struggling. Who am I going to encourage this week? Who am I going to send a text to? Who am I going to send an email? Who am I going to call? Whose house am I going to go over and say, brother, sister? Share scripture with them. Let them know the love of God in Christ. Everybody in this, this church building, it's a small church, but I guarantee you everybody in here has some sort of struggle, something they're wrestling with. Man, a kind word, an encouraging word is scripture. Be like Paul. Go back and strengthen the disciples. Share the gospel. Strengthen the disciples. Let's stand and let's pray. We close this time.